Okay, everybody, welcome to episode four of our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Uh, my co-host is Peter, and I am Doug. And this week we are doing episode four, titled 1968, um, directed by David Frankel, written by Al Reinert, and this also aired on April 12th, 1998, immediately after episode three, We Have Cleared the Tower. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. This is a great episode, I think. Yeah, I don't think this I is, like it as This much is as one it. of the standouts to me. Apollo 8, I mean, great ending. Um, Apollo 8 is a, you know, Apollo 8's a really, it's a, it's a heroic, um, climactic um, topic. Right, um, our first manned trip to the moon. Right, and, the, you know, the incredibly famous Earthrise photo um, probably one of the most famous photos um, anywhere. Certainly one of the most famous photos of all of NASA's endeavors. Um, and probably you know, and all of the 20th century. Yeah, it's one of the most famous photos in general. I don't know and, if you remember, but when we were kids, my brother had the Earthrise photo on a poster in his bedroom. I think everybody had the Earthrise. <laughs> that and Farrah Fawcett. Correct. <laughs> They should have sold um, him as a two-pack. <laughs> Something else was rising with Farrah Fawcett, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's usually, that's kind of a more of a Peter joke. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Strong um, work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my part, you know. <laughs> um, right, but this episode is basically uh, top to bottom, really, ni- uh, the year 1968 and all of the, the political and social turmoil uh, superimposed on the Apollo 8 flight uh, to the moon, circumlunar flight and safe return of our astronauts. Um, right. We are introduced to Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks' real-life wife, who plays Susan Borman in this, who who comes back again, um, I believe, in episode uh, 11. She has a major role again in episode 11. And the the sort of the, the artifice that this episode is built around is a sort of month-by-month lead up to the mission just sort of documenting with a lot of uh newsreel footage and old uh, news footage all the sort of social troubles right mostly civil rights movement martin luther king rfk etc right the theme of this episode is how does how does apollo the trip the the journey to the moon and apollo 8 fit into the milieu of the time, fit into the zeitgeist, fit into what was going on in 1968, culturally, politically. And their point is that it ends the year with an up note, basically. That's an understatement. But it basically, mm-hmm. A it Christmas cap- Eve. Right, it caps, it caps the a, a terrible, what's generally re- recognized as a terrible year to have uh, a chaotic, terrible year. Uh, for for American history and for um, current events at the at the time, looking back, um, and it caps it with with a heroic achievement with the photo and the Earthrise photo, right? The reading from Genesis, the reading from Genesis, and the and the safe return, the first time you know people went to the moon, went in orbit and around the moon, and came back, you know, and really achieved something. 
Um, you know, and, and achieved. Oh, go ahead. And achieved. You know, in with. I mean, all the terrible events of 1968 that happened. It provided a, a, a literally a different perspective, showing the Earth as a small jewel where everyone lives. Where despite borders the, are not visible, right? All the despite the terrible things that happened in 1968 and the strife and the assassinations and the sort of general feeling of a loss of hope, um, I think they in that mission they showed a long term ultimate hope in the sense that you know it's even and Borman says you know on on the good earth and when he says that you can tell he means that you know, yeah that's actually that, my favorite line in the whole show yeah i mean that is a great great line because he you can hear emotion in, in his voice over the crappy audio um you know that he really means it you know that you know look we're we're uh 250,000 miles away and it it gives you a different perspective and we can see all of you in a different way and we want you to, to see what we see and feel what we feel. Right. You're a little blue marble from out here. Right. Actually, wasn't it big blue marble? Yeah. <laughs> wasn't that the show? Yeah. Um, and you know, and Bor we'll get to this all, but you know, and Borman's and the astronauts, you know, reading from Genesis, you know, it gives you faith in the program, faith in the country, faith in humanity, sort of all at once. Like he man they managed to roll it all up into right. a very, very simple thing. I think that, you know, I found it a little tougher to watch because they were trying so hard in terms of film editing. Um, you know, there's a lot. In the first half. It's pretty fancy uh, and a little bit too much. They're, they're a little heavy handed in my opinion, um, demonstrate trying to get people to realize what the current events of the time were. And they end up with that um, tiled, Edited, right. You know. Yeah, the Tarantino like so much. Yeah, it didn't. I don't think it. I don't think it flew. I mean, I don't, I don't think, think. I don't think it flew in the seventies. I don't think it flew here. I don't think it flies when Tarantino does it. It's annoying. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> yeah, it did, like I remember it, when we were like in elementary help. school, and they would roll in the projector when we would watch a movie, and they would sometimes do that in a school movie. Like that's literally what it reminds me of. Right. Um, and you know. Borman in this, you know, as a counterpoint to Mark Harmon's Wally Schirra, um, you know, the way Borman is portrayed here is a detail-oriented, you know, cautious pilot, but who doesn't come off as a dick. Right. You know, and, and Borman is, by all accounts, a severe person. Um, but he comes off better and more likable here and for example like if you read jeff kluger's book apollo 8 you know it is made clear at many many times throughout that borman is cracking the whip on everybody the whole time before during and after the mission uh, right. but he still comes off as a more likable guy than shira yeah and you know that the scene for example where the engineer is talking to him about the the rapid egress through the hatch and borman is able to point out to him that you know, the existing plans won't work. Like he shows like you can do this standing up on the factory floor, but I can't do it laying on my back. Right. And he does it in a way that doesn't 
talk down to the engineer or humiliate him. It you know it's 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 the difference between saying like, "Hey, you asshole, you're wrong," as opposed to like, "Let me show you how this looks from my position." And then help me solve the problem, right? Those are two very different ways to do that. The former was Shirah, the latter is Borman here. Right. Um, they briefly uh, show the unmanned first Saturn V launch, uh, which is the same day as Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, and it's a nice bit in that we have our sort of faw journalist Emmett Seaborn being, you know, shaken out of his set. Yeah. During the launch, which I think is actually what happened to Cronkite. Like, I'm pretty sure that that's like there's a I remember seeing somewhere it's in the depths of my memory. But there's but Cronkite has that experience where the set is like literally shaking and <laughs> fall. Parts are falling around him because they were too close. You know, they were at the distance they were at for Mercury and Gemini. And you couldn't be that close for Apollo. Yeah, there. I think he's supposed to be Cronkite. I mean, they gave him the gla- the black glasses and, the, you know, he's he, he's a substitute for Cronkite. Yeah, he's sort of Cronkite, and he's like a merger of Cronkite and the other guy, Jules Bergman. I think yeah. that I think that that's kind of what they're going for. He's kind of Walter Bergman, I guess is how you can yeah. say it. Um, and then we see um, two interesting things. Is one is uh, we see in the Borman household the they discover that uh, RFK has been assassinated by the Palestinian Sirhan Sirhan, um, and the effect on Susan. And then there is just a very quick shot of susan clearly drinking alcohol yeah and that becomes important in episode 11 uh, which delves heavily into her alcoholism but we are at least as a bit of foreshadowing we are shown susan borman drinking alone in this episode rita wilson's pretty good in this yeah i you know it's funny because i haven't seen a ton in her with her uh but she's good in this and you know she's sort of she's got a sort of like appealing down to earthness throughout this episode that I think works well. Right. Um, and then we get to a scene where they are, it's, you know, it's funny because the scene is a little vague. Like then we cut to, um, some government and NASA personnel looking at, a spy satellite image of a new Soviet rocket. Right. right. And, this is some one. of right now we're getting a little nervous, right? There's a little impetus to maybe <laughs> change the flight schedule, move things up. The LEM isn't ready, right? They can't do everything that they were going to do on the mission, right? So what can they do different? And it's unclear what they're talking about with that Soviet rocket, because on the surface, it sounds like they're talking about the Soviet counterpart to the Saturn V, right? Known as the N1, yeah. Right. Because they're talking about a four-stage multi, multi, uh, you know, multi, multi-engined rocket. Right. But then they, they, they talk a little bit later about Zon Five, which is launched on a proton rocket, and it's not a hundred percent clear to me which rocket they're supposed to be looking at on the pad there, because they're both clustered engine multi-stage rockets. My suspicion is. It's supposed to be the N1 that they're talking about because the the satellite photos, the spy satellite photos of the N1 are all over YouTube. Okay. Um, so my suspicion is that's it. So, you know, by the way, what would have been amazing or that somebody should do is you could do an amazing movie. You could do a 12-part series on the Soviet rocket program. That sure. would be incredible. But the stuff that's come out since the end of the Cold War about the N1 is it's just unbelievable. Like, they're 
they're you know they're an analog to the Saturn V. I mean the Soviet so-called N1L3, like their version of the Saturn V and the you know command and service and lunar modules. I mean it's it's just an incredible story. There is so much unbelievable footage. There were four N1 launches, all failed. Um, several of which, one of which destroyed the pad. Um, I mean, you just can't believe it. And they, they hit it all because when they lost the space race, you know, they buried everything and, and people did not openly speak of the N1 program for, you know, 20 years in the, in the former Soviet Union. It was it, because it was such an embarrassment and a shame mm-hmm. that literally, for example, um, some of the surviving and one rocket segments that they were building were turned into animal shelters. Hmm. There's, there's, there's a pig shelter. There's a very famous pig shelter that is obviously built out of a section of the N1. That's and amazing. Like, and there's pigs running around in the mud, but they were like, well, how can we repurpose this stuff and sort of hide it? But I assume they're talking about the N1. Um, there is um, a great documentary called Cosmodrome that I saw on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, um, but that is mostly about the Soviet N1 L3 program and and heavily focusing on the development on the closed circuit rocket engine that was used for that. Like all American engines were so-called open circuit, and they developed a closed circuit engine, which was considered impossible to do. And the mm-hmm. Soviets developed it. You know, and we were unsuccessful in doing it, uh, so much so that uh, the, the engine has been like the U.S. U.S. companies have purchased the license for this for the engine that was used on the N1 that are it's used now for some satellite launches. But hmm. anyway, but if you get a chance, that Cosmodrome documentary is fantastic, and it is worth it just for the footage. I mean, you can't believe the quality of the footage of uh, of the the N1 L3 rocket and its launches. Hmm. But anyway, um, but we learn here that the LEM is too heavy, right? The lunar module that uh, they were supposed to take up was too heavy. So they decide to skip the E-mission and go right to uh, a lunar flight without a lunar module. And we see Deke pitch this to Borman. Right. And it's a good scene. Once again, you know, Nick Searcy carries a lot of water in this show. Yep. He's quite good. Yeah, I don't know if he ever kind of has a bad scene. Uh, and, you know, and again, there's Deke Slayton giving missions to other guys. Yeah. But he can't go on. <laughs> yep. You know, and Borman's so excited yeah. Um, yeah. to go. It's a big upgrade. Um, and then there's there's a lot of good discussion in this episode, really throughout, both technical and emotional, on their their extreme reliance on the SPS engine, right, on the service right. module, the so-called service propulsion system, right? Because right. that's all that they have left to get them home. Right, right. That's because it. if they go without the LEM, the LEM has an engine that they could use in a, in a pinch. And as a matter of fact, they did on Apollo 13. Um, but uh, they can use that to get back if they're in lunar orbit. They need to boost again to go back towards the Earth, right? So... Um, in, in this case, uh, they only have that. And if, if that thing breaks or doesn't fire or fires inadequately, um, they're not going to get back to Earth. Right. And there, there is discussion. For example, there's a scene where uh, Susan Borman is talking to Chris Kraft about don't put them in orbit. Put them on a free return trajectory. They go around once. Right. They come back and it's safe and you don't have to risk their lives on it. Um 
But Kraft counters by saying, no, 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 it doesn't make sense to go there and not stay in orbit for a while. Right. Um, and, you know, there is, you know, it's funny because the the actual risk is a little bit overhyped for dramatic purposes. And, for example, uh, in, in Kluger's book that I mentioned earlier, they tested the SPS engine on the way out for right. course corrections. And I think it's literally it was a half a second burn. Just like, let's just open the valves and make sure the thing works. Right. Um, so by the time they actually, you know, inserted themselves into lunar orbit, there was much more confidence in the engine than the show kind of conveys. Although right. Susan Borman, Susan Borman has said publicly many times that she was 100% certain that they would die. Hmm. She she believed that that they were all going to be trapped in lunar orbit or something would happen. And she actually made her peace with the fact that Frank was going to die on the mission. Um, I mean, you know, in the show, they, you know, they have her read the letter that she wrote in the event that they died. Right. Um, and she, there's that great bit where she says to Chris Kraft, look, I've seen a lot of, you know, widows and pilots die and I think it's my turn. Right. And it's going to ruin the moon because every time everybody looks up at the moon, they're going to know there's three dead astronauts circling it. Right. Although they wouldn't circle forever. That, see, that's a little like, right, again, crash eventually. Right. Because, right. Have you read about the mass cons? No. So there are these things on the moon called mass cons. Like the moon is not uniformly distributed. And when the moon formed, like, you know, probably from dense concentrations of matter or from large impacts, um, like the the, the gravitational, the gravitational field, field, is, field is very distorted. And in the past, when they tried to orbit things around the moon, like they ended up in bizarre orbits or they crashed and they had a lot of trouble figuring it out. But the mass cons would have eventually corrupted their orbit and they would have eventually probably crashed into the moon. Right. Um, there's a brief mention of Zond 5, which is essentially an unmanned Soyuz that's sent around the moon on a proton rocket, like I said earlier. Well, not entirely um, unmanned. Right, it has it had like animals and turtles on it. Yeah, they put a bunch of like stuff. From, <laughs> I like, don't think that counts as manned. <laughs> well, it depends if you're a turtle. It is. It's unturtled. Well, I guess it was unmanned, but it was not unturtled. <laughs> and I think I think it was like turtles and insects. Yeah, I think they just scooped up whatever was floating around, like near wherever they were, and threw it in there. And then Zon Five lands. Uh, I think it it does. Um, I think. Zon 5, I don't know if it orbits or if it's just a free return trajectory, but it comes back and it lands off course in the Indian Ocean. And there are actually photos of Zon 5 bobbing in the water before it was recovered. Hmm. And Zon 5, you can actually see today, it's on display at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in their museum there. I think it just was a free return because it says on September 18th, it flew around the moon at uh, 1950 kilometer distance. So it was probably a, uh, it probably was a free return. You know, what's interesting is um, they had to send two ships to get it. The Russians sent two ships to get it, and the ships were tailed the whole way by an American vessel. <laughs> so, so some of the photos of Zon 5 in the water were actually taken by the American vessel. Hmm. Um, and they, they hauled it out, and they, like I said, it exists today. Uh, and then... Uh, we follow close on the heels of the discussion of Zon 5 to the actual announcement of the Apollo 8 mission, right, at the end of the year, right around the time of the election, and Nixon wins. Right. Um, that, yeah, figuring that was probably going to be a good presidency. People were probably pretty excited about Nixon winning. 
Uh, although this is his first term, right? right? He gets all his trouble comes on the second go around. This is long before Watergate. Yeah. There's now there's no mention here um, at all of the fact that the original crew is supposed to be Borman, Collins, and Anders. Right. Mike Collins is due to fly on this mission and Collins had herniated a disc. He talks about in his book, Carrying the Fire, he had herniated a disc, I believe, ejecting uh, from a jet. And he had had some compression of his spine uh, that resulted in uh, a a back injury that he had to have ultimately a, a disc hernia repair. So then Lovell gets pulled up to fly and Lovell and um, Borman had flown previously on the Gemini six slash Gemini seven rendezvous mission. Hmm. Um, And, and Lovell Lovell kind of chafed at this a little bit because twice now he has uh, Borman is his commander and he felt Hmm. that he was entitled to a command at this point. Right. But he wasn't going to turn down a flight to the moon. And this, this mission alone in all of uh, Gemini and Apollo, does not put the most experienced astronaut in command. And Lovell, at this point, has now uh, he's now more experienced than Borman, who flew once in Gemini, whereas Lovell flew twice. Lovell flew as commander on Apollo 12 with Aldrin. Mm-hmm. So he has to step out of the commander's seat uh, and become a uh, command module pilot, which is sort of interesting. Right. Um, so there was a little bit of tension between them there, but, you know, Lovell basically puts it aside so that he can, you know, go on this great ride. Yeah. They all want to go on this one. Oh yeah. I would have loved to go on this one. And I don't know if you noticed, but, um, Carrie Elways, is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He, he's. Collins appears in this episode as Capcom. So by the time the mission comes around, he's had his surgery and he's recovering, but he does function as Capcom. So you see him uh, throughout the episode in that role. Right. Um, And uh, there's a sort of heavy handed montage at the launch. Now we finally get to the launch, right? And the launch is essentially, there's a lot of emphasis on the fire coming out of the uh, Saturn V first stage engine, which is sort of, intercut with the conflicts of 1968 sort of beating the viewer over the head with the 1968 conflict metaphor right every everything is fire yeah (laughs) and then I, i think that and then you know once that's behind us and they've paid that lip service is where the episode really becomes great i agree it's much better when they they stop trying to do fancy uh film editing to show how crappy 1968 was. And, you know, here from the perspective, you know, for example, 30 years later when this is aired, I don't think most people were still particularly upset about 1968. You know what I mean? Like, and here we are sitting in 2018, you know, it's, it's enough already. Let's just put it that way. Well, I think that that's what you said. That's exactly the reason why they did so much, because I think they were trying to give you, to put you back in the moment and give you a sense of how, how crappy it was and what, how rough the, the zeitgeist was. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. I just, but I, for one, I, for one was glad to, to, to be done with that. I was too. I just think that it wasn't particularly well done as a piece of, of editing 
film editing. And I, you know, just on a personal level, like I think that we've all been beaten over the head with uh, film and television recounting like the sixties and the turbulence. Like, I just feel like the boomers who make television have just done it over and over and over and over and over. And it's enough. You know what I mean? Like anybody who's interested or cares about all of the troubles of 1968, there's ample movies and television shows and documentaries and everything on CNN, right? CNN's in love with the sixties. Um, it's, you know, there's plenty for that. There's plenty of room for that. So let, let's, you know, for me, I want to, I'm interested in Borman Lovell and Anders. Right. Um, I have to say that I think the second half of this episode contains some of the best effects work in the entire series. Uh, and it's done, it's done both realistically and effectively to help tell the story and move the story along and give you a sense of it. Like, like, the, like the floating vomit. Yeah. The floating vomit is a nice shot. Yeah. Um, you're getting a little ahead of us, but yeah, no, the floating <laughs> vomit is good. The launch sequence, you know, very quickly you get to the fact you get to the, you see them sort of uh, separate from the first stage. And there is, I think it's one of the best shots in the entire series so much so that they use it in the opening credits every week of the S four B firing, right? When they go, right. uh, when they're, you know, there's that nice scene where they go for TLI translunar injection and they light up the S four B, which takes them to the moon. That is a phenomenal shot, and it really conveys, you know, they're they're traveling on a pillar of flame, and they're leaving Earth orbit. Yeah, um, I love I love it. And I, also, they show they do a decent job showing how violent <laughs> violent the launch was, because they, you know, they um, they say it was a smooth ride, you know, on the on the, on the radio, <laughs> lying, and then, and then they're like, God, that was awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we get a nice shot of Lovell using the Apollo sextant, which is, again, you know, they could have just skipped that. It's hyper-technical, but, yeah. you know, down to him wearing his eye patch. And then we get to Borman getting sick. Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, he probably, I don't think, I don't, I, and it's nothing that I've read or um, or looked up about this implies that he actually had any sort of infection. He just had space motion sickness. Right. Um, and then, which, you know, I guess people were saying the Apollo capsules may have been more susceptible to it than it's bigger because it's bigger, and they kind of ha- didn't have the same sense of space, so they tended to get the visual cues were different. Right, and when you were on Mercury and Gemini, you know, you're sitting in a chair for a couple of days, right? Whether it's 15 minutes or you know, or 10 days or four, sorry, 14 days, you know, you're just staring at the dashboard three feet in front of you, and it doesn't change its orientation unless you do an EVA, right? Um, in the in the Kluger book, they they talk about how they think that it must have been the fact that the capsule was bigger and they were, you know, they had a lot of room to move around. Like there's a kind of like, quote unquote, additional room in the so-called lower equipment bay below the couches where, you know, a, a whole person could fit and have just some meager semblance of privacy. And, you know, they're flying around in it. Right. Um, they, I think I read that the the command module is equivalent in cubic volume to a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> it's amazing um, it's amazing that that's roomy at the and time. you know there is there's an acknowledgement in Apollo 13 uh, about Borman getting sick when Hayes gets sick after launch right Lovell um, says yeah yeah, yeah he says Borman was up chucking halfway to the moon yeah don't worry yeah <laughs> so it's an interesting that you know we're sort of crossing between our uh, Apollo properties here but sort of acknowledgement of Borman's 
illness. Um, and, and by all accounts, he was, he was vomiting and having diarrhea for quite a while. Yeah. Like he, uh, like, uh, Lovell and Andrews pretty much had to take over his responsibilities until he was able to function better. Right. Um, I think the command module model, this is kind of the first time we really get to see a lot of it. The, the set, I mean, the, 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 set, both, yeah. the, the internal set looks amazing, even down to the way the lights, the sort of the lights behind their heads look, they've got those little light boxes Yeah, and the, and the, and the command model, sorry, the command module, both the physical model and the CG, uh, looks great. It just looks great. Like the way they, they got like the silver finish on the command module just right. Like it looks so real. Yeah. I love it. Um, they only briefly make mention of the uh, initial TV broadcast that they do uh, before the big one. There, there actually there were several TV broadcasts and they didn't actually the astronauts really did not like them and they did not want to do them. But. Uh, I think that they did not appreciate how much people would be following and how big their viewership would be. Right. Um, I like the way that they actually acknowledge that the, that the SPS has hypergolic uh, propulsion, which is, again, hang on, let me just take off my, put on my nerd helmet here for a second. Okay, nerd helmet on. <laughs> it's already on. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I'll just, the, the extra. You to, you're going to engage turbo nerd mode. <laughs> Pushing to turbo, I want to go or no go for turbo <laughs> nerd mode. Um, so um, both the lunar module uh, and the uh, uh, command module used hypergolic propellants. Have you ever read about this? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, they basically just um, they just you know it's like they say in the episode that they, they ignite uh, on contact. Correct. So they just right. have to mix them. Right. So this is hydrazine and nitrogen nitrogen tetroxide. And all they have to do, right, just like you said, is they mix them and the engine fires. Right. It's like it, it has to work like it can't not work. Right. Right. Unless the service module explodes. But but yeah, but they um, it probably they, would have you know, worked then. And, they had, but... and there were manual ways that they could do the valves if they had to. Like, right. The engine was basically going to work. Right. Um. But I think it's pretty cool. And like, and you know, these propellants are super toxic. And and for yeah. example, many years later, when the space shuttle Columbia is lost, um, you know, they were there were all those people on the news saying, like, if you see a piece of the shuttle, call the police, don't pick it up, because um they knew that the RCS tanks on the Columbia probably still had hydrazine. I think they were using monomethyl hydrazine on the shuttle, and they knew like you cannot have any contact with these propellants. And, and some of the tanks did come down and were found, like the RCS tanks on Columbia were found. So, like, some of that was don't mess with the investigation, leave things where you find it. But also there was real concern that the, the propellants were going to make it down. Yeah, it was toxic. Um, yeah. Oh, it's super toxic. And then the rest of the episode is very consumed with the mechanics, right? The You know, they, they have their... To send, they have their sorry their their translunar injection, their lunar orbit insertion. Um, you know they they have to fire the engine to get into orbit. Yeah, right? they and even then, show them like kind of on the their axis of travel. Um, you know, being they rotated, uh, you know, against the, with the flat perpendicular the to the, the direction of right, the tra travel shall we towards say. the sun, and they were spinning slowly. Right, they, the so-called PTC or barbecue, right? Mode. Barbecue. So they, they passive thermal, uh, 
something conduction right, ptc right they're, right they're trying to basically heat up everything uh, evenly um, right and, and not went. let one half of the ship get too hot or too cold right so, so called barbecue which is also mentioned in apollo 13 yeah so they, they even show that even though they don't really explain it so um this brings us right to Earthrise. Yeah. Um, so it's worth mentioning that Anders had almost nothing to do on the mission. Um, you know, Anders was the, he's a lunar module pilot. Um, and when they took the lunar module away, uh, Anders, like literally like 80% of his responsibilities for the entire flight just evaporated. Right. So he is assigned mission photographer. So he's almost all the, the, the video and the photos you see, from Apollo 8, it's mostly Bill Anders' handiwork. And when they see the Earth rise, you know, the astronauts are, you know, they're, as anyone would be, I guess they are, they're just awed by, you know, and the word awesome is thrown around a lot in our, in our culture these days, but yeah. this is the actual meaning of awesome. Right. Right. An awe-inspiring sight. They are in awe of seeing the Earth. Right. No human has ever been that far away. And they're far away and they're in orbit around the moon instead of the Earth. So they're not only uh, quantitatively far away, but figuratively, they're even seem further away because they're in orbit around another body. Um, and, and they come around and the Earth is rising above the lunar landscape. It's, I mean, I'm looking at the photo while we're talking. Like, it looks unbelievable today because, you know, it's it's kind of in deep focus. Like, the Earth is crystal clear, yeah. and the moon up close to you is in unbelievable detail. So, it's just a great shot. You know, they they pay just the teeniest little bit of lip service to the Earthrise controversy in the episode. Um, have you read about this? What, people think it's fake or something? No, Borman heavily implied on many occasions he took the picture because it was mm. so famous. Right. Uh, and, and Anders for years said, bullshit. <laughs> I took the photo. And they mm. show, for example, they show Lovell try to take a picture. And the camera do, doesn't work. Right. The camera doesn't have any film. He's literally snapping shots of the camera with no film in it. And, you know, we're living in a time, you know, when everything is in the public domain and the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal and the Apollo Flight Journal are out and you could just pull this stuff up in a heartbeat on the, you know, then non-existent Internet. But for many years, Borman heavily implied or outright said he took the photo and Anders ran all around saying it's not true. It's not true. And Borman most of the time gets the credit for the photo. And then many, many years later, uh they they listen to the tapes publicly and it is very very obvious from the recordings that Anders is the photographer cuz cuz Borman is telling him take the picture take the picture right so they they go out of their way in the episode to show that and it kind of became a humorous point like when the astronauts would would speak publicly and Borman Lovell and Anders spoke publicly as a group many times that Anders would always say just so we're clear I took the picture. <laughs> nice. Um, what was I going to say? But the effects look great uh, here. You know, like there's good use of the set. There's good use of them sort of floating around, looking out the window. Um, you know, they show their version of Earthrise. I don't know. Like it's this is for me like such a rewarding episode. Like, like you and I were born at the wrong time. You know, we should have. I would have been great to have been there. Yeah. Um. 
And then we, you know, we cut back to now they've got to do the TEI, right? They've got to do their trans-Earth injection burn, the opposite of TLI, fire off the SPS on the far side of the moon, right? Because they're doing, right? They're doing uh, the Hohmann transfer of Hohmann transfers, right? They're, yes. they're making the, they're making the Apolloon so high that it takes them out of the moon's sphere of influence and back to earth right so they have to basically accelerate their velocity escape lunar orbit which you know obviously takes less than escaping earth orbit uh or at least maybe not escape as technically but they're right they're going into a much higher orbit essentially so they're adding energy and velocity which will loop them further out from the moon and take them to the point where they're captured by Earth orbit again. And, and then, can coast home. Right. Then they coast home and they'll be able to make changes so that they re-enter um, appropriate, an appropriate spot and angle. Yeah. It's interesting because once they make the burn, you know, they've got enough velocity to leave and then their velocity falls, right? Because the yeah. moon is pulling on them and then right. when they get to this transition point, they start to accelerate again and the earth starts to pull them. Right. They're falling back into the earth's gravity. Well, and then I don't know who actually says it. I assume it's Borman, but I could be wrong, but there's that famous line when they come around for acquisition of signal after the TEI burn that, you know, they're, there, please be advised. There is a Santa Claus. Yeah. And then we get to see Sue Borman's relief. Like he's going to make it back. They're going to live. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, they don't show it here so much. They show it more in Apollo 13. But, you know, she spent most of the mission listening to the so-called squawk box. Like NASA had installed in the astronauts' homes a little receiver where they could listen to the loops 24 hours a day. So they, they, could, they didn't have to call in or watch TV to find out what was happening. They could just listen in real time live. Although they don't really show it here, I don't think. They show it in other episodes, but not this one. They show it, I think, in uh, the first episode. They show a little squawk box. Um, and then we, we wrap up with telegrams, right? There's a telegram from uh, Mrs. Pringle, right? The You Saved 1968 telegram. Right, which is a great, great line and really sums up what they're trying to say in the episode thematically. You know, they don't, they don't actually they don't actually say it in the episode, but Borman, Lovell, and Anders were Times Men of the Year for 1968. Hmm. Essentially echoing um, Mrs. Pringle's sentiment. And it was supposed to be somebody else. And they had somebody else picked. And I think they even had a cover painting done. Right. And then, you know, in the, the waning last days, this event happens. And then they threw everything out um, and made that men of the year. This was still when, A, people read Time magazine. B, people <laughs> cared about Time magazine. And it was... Man of the year before it was person of the year. Well, you can Although now nobody gives a crap about Time magazine. Well, you can or, generalize is when people read magazines, not just Time magazine. Oh they yeah, it, right. I remember when we were kids, we got we were spoiled. We got Time and Newsweek. Right. But could you imagine a weekly news magazine now? Right. I mean, yeah. you know, but in in the era of twenty four hour news cycle, cable news, and the internet, you know, who even reads a newspaper? You know, that's yeah. not online. Right. Well, people um, people read the electronic newspaper most of the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But but again, you know, time was a big deal back then. No disrespect to time, which is not a big deal now, but it was a huge, huge deal then. Right. Um, there is um, an interesting bit right there at the end, too, that one of the telegrams is from Charles and Ann Lindbergh. 
Right. Uh, and this is an interesting footnote to the story. You know, they say like, you've made Robert Goddard's dream real. Um, and the Apollo 8 astronauts met with the Lindberghs before the launch. Um, uh, and they were very conflicted about meeting with the Lindberghs. I mean, you could argue that Charles Lindbergh was the biggest celebrity of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm not quite sure that, you know, anybody touches Lindbergh's at his, at the height of his fame. Right. Although on the it's, planet. Hard, it's hard to imagine that given how far in the past it is at this point, right. people can't, but, but it, it but was they, the case. But when they met Lindbergh, you know, these are all military men. Right. And they were very uncomfortable with a lot of his stances around World War II. Sure. So, you know, you know, they, they respected him as an aviator and he, you know, he's known for the tragedy of the Lindbergh baby, but you know, his isolationism and his sort of cozying up to, to sort of Nazi Germany or Nazi sentiments really did not sit well with them. And, and when Lindbergh came, they were essentially pressured into meeting him by NASA and they were, especially Borman did not like meeting him. Right. But that's an interesting little bit there, you know, that you would think that they would have loved to meet to meet Lindbergh. But it was it was more complicated than that. You know, and by that time, Lindbergh is kind of, you know, he's kind of living in exile. Right. Whew. Uh, and we finished the episode uh, with acknowledgement that they get home and uh, the moonrise image. Right. You know, the actual moonrise image, it's sort of interesting um, you usually don't see the full, sorry, moonrise, earthrise, sorry. Yeah, the earthrise. You usually, you usually don't see the, the full one. It's usually cropped. Right, to make the earth look bigger. And, and they cut off the top to make the picture more sort of like letterboxy. Yeah. But the actual image is, it's, it's a square. With, there's a lot more black on the top. Um, than you, and for example, my brother's poster in his room was a sort of like letterboxy view, like sort of like much wider than it was tall. But the actual image uh, is uh, is square. Right. It was probably it was shot a... with a Hasselblad, which is a square medium format mm -hmm. film. I, I'm 99% sure that's exactly what it was. Right. Because that's what they used throughout the Apollo program. But it wasn't the first time it had actually been seen. They had seen it before on some of the lunar orbiters. Right. So there, there are actually previous pictures. So they actually knew it was coming. Like they knew at some point they would see the, the Earth rise. I think that they were just unprepared for their emotional reaction. But there are black and white versions of the same photo that had been taken years previously by lunar orbiters, which is kind right. of interesting, too. I don't know. I love this episode. I think it's. For me, it's one of the high points of the series. I don't think it's the best episode. I think that's coming up in a couple of episodes. I'll, I'll be mom on which one I think is best. Um, but this is really inspiring stuff. Like if you are of a certain mindset and interested in this in, in this type of topic, I mean, it's a very inspiring show. Yeah, it's, it ends really well. This episode, I love it. Yeah, uh, and you know, and it it sort of it drives home like the importance of the Apollo program. You know, both to America and to the world in a larger sense. Right. You know, as a sort of a technical accomplishment, a national accomplishment, and a human accomplishment. Right. So, you know, it's funny, though. Many, many of the astronauts say the same thing that, and again, 
you've probably heard this before, but many people come back from space and they say that, you know, once you see the Earth as it really is with no borders and we're all on this thing together and we're surrounded by nothing, you know, it does inspire a feeling of oneness and brotherhood that, you know, the day-to-day life and conflict and headache and doesn't, doesn't give you. Yeah, and they say it over and over. Even if they go in the low Earth orbit, they say it. You know, even if they're on a shuttle flight or whatever. <laughs> a mere shuttle flight. A mere shuttle flight as opposed to Earth rise from the moon. Right, from lunar orbit. <laughs> um, so Lovell, we know about Lovell uh, from uh, other discussions we've had and will have in our podcast adventures. This is Anders' only flight. Yep. Uh, this is it for Anders. He sort of comes and goes. Um, and uh, and then do you remember what Borman is famous for after the Apollo program? Didn't, uh, I can't remember. Um, he heads Eastern Airlines. That's right. That's right. He went to work right. for Eastern Airlines and they had a crash. Right. So he, you know, he yeah. sort of presided among uh, oh, he presided over. He, I think he went as vice president and then became president of Eastern Airlines. And um, he he presided over this their both their best period and their worst period. So like his first couple of years as president of Eastern, they made a fortune and it was just everything was coming up roses. And then he was president of Eastern during deregulation. And one of the things he had done is he had kind of been like the pilot's president. Like he was very, very focused on the pilot's. And he had bought a lot of planes and modernized Eastern's fleet, which cost a fortune. And then deregulation happened. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the prices tanked. Ticket prices fell to the floor. And they had just spent a fortune on all these planes. And I believe that Eastern went bankrupt. And he's pretty much credited for Eastern's collapse. Right. So he sort of like, he wrote it to the top and he wrote it to the bottom. And he got fired, I think, before Eastern officially went bust, but it's, I mean, the, the blame was kind of heaped on him. And I remember when this came out, uh, talking about it with my dad and, and it was funny cause to my, to my dad, you know, who was in business his entire life, like when you say Frank Borman, he doesn't think of Apollo way. He thinks of Eastern airlines and the stock tanking. And my dad was pissed when that stock tanked. I distinctly <laughs> remember, I distinctly remember my dad sort of cursing Frank Borman. So it's funny how like you remembered, you remembered, uh, different ways by different people. <laughs> and and I guess, still I guess, alive too. Yeah, and I think Sue. I don't know if Sue Borman is still alive. Is Sue Borman still alive? I do not know. You know, they famously also stayed married for a super long time. The the Bormans, and then Anders. um, Anders, like I said, Anders. This is his one flight, and uh, and that's it. Yeah. And then he, I guess he he left for the National Aeronautics and Space Council afterwards, but he never flew in space again. But, you know, that having said, if you're going to have one flight, Apollo 8's not a bad one to have. No, Jeez. pretty good. Anyway, what a good one. This is, again, a high point for me. Not the highest, but definitely a high point. Um, next up is uh, next time we'll be talking about episode five, which I believe is Spider about yes. Grumman and the Lunar Module. And, uh, Uh, Tom Kelly, I believe. Yep. All right. Should we wrap there? Yep. We'll see you next time. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you uh, next time. And remember, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, Peter and I also do uh, Popcorn Drink Combo, our movie podcast.